Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories Time Travel Podcast. Picture this strange world. The Greeks are now at the heart of the new Roman Empire. They have the Roman legions and institutions. Their culture is infused with an exotic Middle Eastern religion. They are surrounded on all sides by barbarity, and within the walls of the greatest city on earth, they protect the last of the great libraries of the ancient world. Is this fodder for an alternate history? No. This is the story of the Byzantines, the world in which Robin Pearson lives. If you enjoyed Mike Duncan's History of Rome, you'll sink right into the history of Byzantium. And now for the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 14, The Emperor Justin. Before we get into the episode proper, I have several things to talk about. The first is to say that if you haven't heard of Jordan Harbour's podcast, The Twilight Histories, then you need to go check it out. Jordan takes a radio theatre approach with a historical what-if scenario playing out over half an hour with sound effects and music to help you visualise the story. It's an excellent podcast, and if you're looking for somewhere to start, check out his last episode, Roma Islamica, which, as you can imagine, is the story of what might have happened if the Roman Empire had converted to Islam. It's a scenario which we will, of course, face down the road on the history of Byzantium. Jordan even has an ebook available for Kindle to accompany the podcast. The second thing to say is that I can tell from the web stats that many of you missed part one of our look at the Byzantine state. So if you only listened to the episode about the church and the army, you may have missed out on the government, which was covered in episode 12. Go and grab it now. In fact, in the comments left on part one at the historyofbyzantium.wordpress.com, listener Dan leaves a great link where you can find more images of Byzantine imperial regalia, with red boots and flowing robes aplenty. And finally, two listeners pointed out that I was a little loose with my wording when I claimed that relics and icons were worshipped within Byzantine churches. Of course, to literally worship an object would have broken the commandment to have no other god but me. It's certainly worth drawing a distinction between veneration and actual worship. 
However, the distinction was not nearly as clear as it would be today in a Protestant church where worship of anything but the Trinity might be seen as idolatrous. Within the Byzantine world, there was little doubt that, for example, the disciples were holy men whose relics were capable of healing the sick or warding off evil spirits. Similarly, holy men out in the deserts were regularly consulted for advice and arbitration, while monks, bishops, and of course emperors might be looked at as having a closer relationship with God than the average person. So worship may have been the wrong word. But did a Byzantine Christian believe all sorts of things which aren't written anywhere in the Bible? Yes, absolutely. Remember that this is still a world infused with superstition about every aspect of life. The major religious ideology might have changed out of all recognition, but the underlying customs and beliefs about how the world worked were going to take far longer to adapt. Okay, now let's get on with the show. It's been seven episodes since we left the narrative of the history of Byzantium, and to make sure we're all on the same page, I'm going to borrow a quick trick from my other work as a TV critic. Previously, on the history of Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire was enjoying its first spell of peace, prosperity, and relative calm in many a year under the rule of the elderly emperor Anastasius. Known for his frugality, the emperor had boosted the Byzantine economy by issuing new coins and was slowly filling the treasury as he felt was his duty. The emperor's monophysite beliefs began to cause problems towards the end of his reign. With the bishop of Antioch Severus egging him on, Anastasius tampered with the liturgy in Constantinople's churches, setting off riots and a rebellion in Thrace by one of the army commanders, Vitalian. Although Vitalian was defeated when he marched on the capital, he was not killed and remains at large. Then, on the night of the 9th of July, 518, Anastasius died after a 27-year reign. It's surprising to learn that the emperor, so fastidious with much of imperial business, had no succession plan in place. Some of the histories claim that he did have an illegitimate son, but that he died during one of Constantinople's major riots. However, Anastasius did have three nephews, Probus, Pompeius, and Hypatius. The latter we've already met. He was sent out to put down Vitalian after the initial revolt, but was defeated, captured, and ransomed. This setback can't have hurt Hypatius's standing too much, as by the time of the emperor's death, he was serving as master of the soldiers in the east, one of the most important jobs in the empire. However, Hypatius was not to become emperor, nor apparently can he have wanted to be. After all, a man who both had a legitimate claim to the throne and commanded the eastern army would surely have been in a position to press his case. In fact, Hypatius and the other nephews continued to take official positions in service of the new regime. Although it's complete speculation on my part, I wonder if Anastasius felt that he perhaps didn't have the right to begin a new dynasty of his own. He was, after all, only chosen to become emperor by Zeno's widow Ariadne. He might have felt that he was merely an imperial stopgap. 
there were still relatives of the Theodosian line alive, and just maybe Anastasius felt the crown would return to them. We'll never know, of course, but what we do know is that once the emperor was found dead, the palace was gripped with the fever of ambition. The chance to become head of the civilized world was up for grabs, and with Hypatia several hundred miles away, the time to act was now. The palace filled with senators and officials jockeying for position, and the three key men were Sella, the master of offices, Amantius, the imperial chamberlain, and Justin, Count of the Excubitors, the imperial bodyguard. On the morning of the 10th of July, Sella began to hold discussions with the Senate while news filtered around the capital and the Hippodrome filled with an expectant crowd. Sensing an opportunity, Amantius, who was a eunuch, put forward one of his men, Theocritus, as a candidate. Theocritus was not well known, and so the Chamberlain decided to oil the decision-making wheels by spreading some cash around. He needed to secure the support of the Imperial Guards, who would naturally have a key role in the proceedings, and also wanted to get his bribes out to well-placed men outside of the palace. He had to make sure that the crowds would not begin chanting anything embarrassing, such as, Who is Theocritus? Here, Amantius made his big mistake. He decided to hand the cash over to Justin, Count of the Excubitors. Who could be better to have on your side at this stage than the man commanding the best troops in the city? Of course, Justin, upon receiving a bag full of cash, asked himself the question, who better to become the new emperor than, well, me? Justin dispersed the money as requested, but instead of telling the recipients to support Theocritus, it was his name they were to acclaim. The crowd in the Hippodrome were becoming restless, and the guards present in the imperial box began yelling out the names of potential candidates to much booing and cheering. On the other side of the door leading from the box back to the palace, the chamberlains refused to open up until they had word from the senators as to who they should deliver the imperial regalia to. With pressure growing on Sella and the assembled senate, the name of Justin was dropped into the conversation. Here, surely, was the best compromise candidate. A fellow senator, a well-respected, if hardly noble, man, who the palace soldiers would happily support. Justin agreed, and made his way through the passageway to the imperial box, and emerged dressed in the robes of the emperor. The excubitors lifted him on their shields, and placed a gold chain on his head, to many cheers. Justin promised good government, and a donative to the troops, of course, before leading a procession to the Hagia Sophia, and then back to the palace, for a banquet of celebration. The Byzantines had a new emperor. We don't know if that's exactly how it happened, as the histories have slight variations in the order of events. But what is in little doubt is that when an emperor dies with no successor, the imperial bodyguard will more often than not have the final say. Flavius Justinus known to us in English as simply Justin, was around 66 when he became emperor. He was born about 452 in the Balkans. 
for those of you who feel like popping back to the map from episode 9, his hometown was Bedariana in the province of Dardania. He came from a family of peasant farmers and was probably a swineherd. Justin grew up in a changing world. The Western Empire was still around, just, and his hometown was a place where the Pope's influence on church life was strong, and the people spoke Latin rather than Greek. When he turned 20, Justin and two friends walked all the way to Constantinople to seek a better life. He joined the army and was able to sign up for the new palace regiment, the Excubitors, which had just been formed by the Emperor Leo. He served with distinction in the Isaurian and Persian wars and rose through the ranks to become the leader or count of the elite palace regiment. If Justin's story was the ultimate rags-to-riches tale, then his wife Lupikina could claim to have topped him. She was an ex-slave, an ex-concubine slave, who Justin had purchased and then married. Now she was the empress and changed her name to the more imperial-sounding Euphemia. At first glance, the new emperor would seem distinctly lacking in pedigree. A senator he may have been, but educated he was not. It's possible that he was illiterate. He certainly had no formal education, nor did he have any experience of governing. He might have seemed to some a disastrous choice. However, Justin had several important advantages which helped smooth over his less-than-aristocratic appearance. The first was that he was uncompromisingly orthodox in his beliefs. For those who had risen against Anastasius' monophysitism, Justin was a reassuring sight. Second, he was well respected by the army, one of the most important constituencies to please in these situations. Third, Justin was in his 60s, older than Anastasius had been when he donned the purple, and he had no son. If Justin turned out to be a terrible administrator, perhaps no one would have to suffer for very long. Of course, if the emperor really was illiterate, then he was going to need an educated colleague to help him manage the affairs of state. And fortunately for Justin, he had an energetic, ambitious, and highly educated nephew named Justinian. A member of the palace guards at this stage, we don't know what role Justinian played in the elevation of his uncle, but no one would be surprised if he had been wheeling and dealing with the best of them. Justinian was to prove himself a highly motivated campaigner for his uncle's interests, and by extension, his own. While the older man was settling comfortably into the palace, his wily nephew was building a political base of support to make sure that the new regime laid down firm roots. I'll introduce Justinian properly in the next episode, but he was certainly involved in the administration from day one. On day two, Justin got to work. The first thing to do was to get rid of Amantius and Theocritus. If Justin really had spectacularly defrauded the Grand Chamberlain, he could hardly leave a bitter and vengeful rival just hanging around. So Amantius was accused of heresy and was executed, along with Theocritus, while several of his domestics were exiled. 
That was the only blood spilt, initially at least. Many of Anastasius's ministers were kept in place, including Marinus, the man behind the most important financial reforms, who now became Praetorian Prefect of the East. Anastasius's nephews were assured of their safety too, and then came the big moment. Vitalian was invited to come to Constantinople and put a formal end to his rebellion. While the message went out to the rogue general, the ground was prepared in the capital. Justin let it be known that he would be happy if Prussia was brought to bear on the Patriarch to overturn Anastasius's ecclesiastical policies. A crowd soon gathered around the Hagia Sophia and began agitating for the Patriarch John II to restore the names of the Patriarchs Euphemius and Macedonius, who had been dismissed by the late Emperor, and to set a day when the Council of Chalcedon could be commemorated. Chalcedon, of course, being the ecumenical council which had defined orthodoxy against Monophysitism. The Patriarch agreed, amidst much excitement and chanting, particularly of the Trisagion, with no Monophysite alterations. Two days later, John assembled a council of all the bishops he could find and began undoing much of the ecclesiastical legislation since the Council of Chalcedon. In other words, the Henoticon was to be ignored and the Monophysites were not to be appeased. Jesus had two natures, one human and one divine, and that was that. So now, Justin's orthodox credentials were seen to be as impeccable as Vitalian's. There was no need for more hostility. The general should abandon his hideout and come home. Doubtless nervous about this invitation, Vitalian asked for some kind of concrete reassurance of his safety. So Justin, Justinian, and Vitalian exchanged oaths of allegiance, and with that, the general was welcomed back into the fold. More than that, Justin greeted him warmly and appointed him commander of one of the precental armies for good measure. Justin, of course, wanted more than just the restoration of orthodoxy. He wanted to put an end to the occasion schism and get the church back in communion with the Pope. Growing up as a Latin speaker in the Western Balkans, it was anathema to Justin and his countrymen to be cut off from their spiritual leader. An embassy was sent to Rome to begin negotiations, though this was not as simple as it might sound. One of the men who was not happy to see Justin become emperor was Theodoric over in Italy. Now in his sixties, the great Ostrogoth knew that upon his death, the Byzantines might try to repudiate Gothic rule in Italy and take it back for the empire. As you may recall from episode 8, the Roman clergy were not interested in any compromise with heretic Monophysites, so as long as the emperors were pushing compromises like the Henoticon, the Italians might actually prefer to have Goths guarding their churches. However, with a true champion of orthodoxy on the throne, there was every likelihood that the Italians would revert back to seeing the emperor as their true ruler and the Goths as foreign interlopers. Sensitive to this situation, Justin wooed Theodoric with two offers. The first was that Theodoric's chosen successor, his son-in-law Eutharic, would share the consulship with Justin himself 
the following year. Moreover, Justin would adopt Euthoric according to German custom, so not a legal adoption in Roman law, but still enough to assure his succession to the throne. Euthoric, by accepting the adoption, would also give formal submission of the Gothic state to the empire. With the diplomatic path cleared, Pope Hormizdas could finally get what he wanted. The Henoticon was no more, and the memories of Acacius, Zeno, and Anastasius were all damned for their part in it. They weren't erased from history, as Augustus had once tried to do to Mark Antony. Their names would just no longer be remembered by the Orthodox Church during its annual celebrations. The schism was at an end, and Justin set in motion a persecution of Monophysite monks and clergy. Throughout the East, men were asked to either accept the Orthodox creed, as laid out at the Council of Chalcedon, or leave their posts. This worked out adequately in the case of the bishops, with only 55 reportedly refusing to accept. However, nothing was done about Egypt, whose Monophysite majority were too firmly entrenched to be easily removed. Justin left the Patriarch of Alexandria, Timothy, alone to guard his flock, which by now included the agitator Severus, who had fled Antioch upon Justin's accession. Bishops were one thing, monks were another. The reason Zeno had come up with the Henoticon was because attempts to force Monophysites to change their views had conspicuously failed. Half a century later, and their beliefs were as firmly held as ever. Jesus had warned his followers that there would be pain in store, and so the brave or the pious now became martyrs for their Monophysite beliefs. One monastic community at Amida were driven from their home, but were still campaigning to be reinstated a decade later. Some monks were forced to live amongst the people once more, but of course continued to practice and preach their beliefs, in some cases converting citizens who would otherwise have remained orthodox. The persecutions would rumble on for some time, and we will return to them again. As I mentioned earlier, we will deal with Justinian's rapid political rise in the next episode. But by 520, he had been given command of the other Praecental army, so that he and Vitalian would be comrades at meetings in the palace. An interesting aspect of Vitalian's revolt was that he had not done what practically every other rebellious soldier in Roman history had. He had not declared himself emperor. He had simply styled himself as the defender of orthodox belief, and had never stated officially his desire to replace Anastasius. Vitalian had therefore become a powerful figure. His cause had won the day, even if he had not been personally victorious. He was made consul for the year, and his position at court seemed assured. But things were not as they might seem. In July of 520, on his way to dinner at the palace, Vitalian was ambushed and killed. Gibbon reports that he was stabbed 17 times. No official verdict was given on who was responsible, but the fact that the deed was done near the palace, and that Justinian was the one who most benefited from his death, the verdict of historians is unanimous. 
Vitalian had rebelled against an emperor and could not be trusted. And now there was no longer any serious rival to Justin or his nephew. Before I go, I need to tell you a little more about the primary sources available to us for the 6th century. Few eras in Roman history are as well covered by contemporaries as the reigns of Justin and Justinian. Evagrius of Epiphania wrote a history in Greek, John of Ephesus wrote a history in Syriac, and we have good first-hand accounts of various events from John Malalas, a lawyer in Antioch, Count Marcellinus in Italy, and Victor Tunesinus, a bishop in Africa. The most famous of the histories, though, comes from a man who I have already had to mention in our story. So crucial is he to our understanding of the period. Procopius of Caesarea in Palestine was a highly educated lawyer who decided to turn his hand to writing history. And in one of those wonderful historical coincidences, Procopius was given the job of legal secretary or advisor to Belisarius, a young rising officer who would end up being Justinian's key general. Procopius travelled with Belisarius across Europe and wrote a seven-book history of the wars of Justinian. He was keen to imitate the great classical tradition of Thucydides and Herodotus, but between the set-piece accounts of hand-to-hand combat which that style demanded, we also get fascinating first-hand accounts of battles, skirmishes, and sieges. The books were finished around 551 and were written with a public audience in mind. Six years later, and Procopius produced another work, a panegyric on the emperor's building programs. While the histories were, of course, flattering to the emperor, a panegyric naturally goes even further and assaults the reader with the glories of the divinely appointed Justinian and all the magnificent structures he erected. From that description, you might be thinking that we need to read Procopius carefully to make sure that we don't mistake his flattery and glowing words for accurate descriptions of the great men of the period. And although that's true, there is an almighty twist. Sometime around 1620, an Italian librarian poking around the Vatican archives uncovered another work by Procopius that had certainly not been published during the emperor's lifetime. The Anecdota, or Secret History, is Procopius's personal account of the emperor's reign, presumably written to titillate and amuse his friends and close associates. In it, Procopius reveals his disgust and contempt for the peasant emperor and his wife, and eventually turns on Belisarius too for his various foibles. The Anecdota is an extraordinary book, giving us a ton of information we couldn't get anywhere else, and leaving us with a highly complex portrait of the court of the Emperor Justinian. We now actually have to go the other way and question which parts of the secret history are wild exaggeration intended to ridicule key people, rather than the truth about their motives. So Procopius acts as both the nightly news and his own daily show across the 6th century. As I shall make frequent references to him throughout the podcasts, I thought it best to introduce him now. We aren't sure exactly when he died, but... 
Agathias of Marina continued his work covering the history of the next decade or so, playing Robin Pearson to Procopius's Mike Duncan. And when Agathias died, Menander Protector continues the story up to 582, giving us a continuous narrative to well past the death of Justinian. So there you have it. And in two weeks' time, we will properly introduce the man who will dominate the next half-century of Byzantine life. He's also the face of both this podcast and probably half of all the books written on Byzantine history. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have left a message on Facebook or at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com, do check back later, as eventually I get round to replying to them all. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.